0: Welcome to podcast number 47 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is April 23rd, 2019, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's guest is my friend and colleague, Dean Beers. Dean is a licensed private investigator and subject matter expert in the areas of death investigation and personal injury causation. He has over 6,500 hours of experience specific to death investigation and related injuries, negligence, causation, all the way from... Field investigation to forensic autopsy assistance. He is the only board certified legal investigator in Northern Colorado and is a certified medico legal death investigator specializing in consultations and investigations of all civil, personal injury, negligence, and death matters, as well as felony criminal defense. He continues to speak extensively on investigative techniques and principles and has authored multiple peer reviewed white papers. And the book, Practical Methods for Legal Investigations Concepts and Protocols in Civil and Criminal Cases. It is my pleasure to introduce Dean Beers. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigators. Investigation, but most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned; the interview is about to begin. Hi, Dean. Welcome
1: to the show. Hey, John. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's it's great to talk to you. And uh, people need to know that we're old friends.
0: Yes, uh, we've been friends for many, many years, and yeah. I always, and I always wondered why I hadn't had you on the podcast so far. And it just amazed me that we haven't had a chance to chat until now. But we're both very busy and uh, and now we have the time to talk. So that's fantastic. So it is. how is it out there in uh, north central Colorado these days?
1: Well, uh, yesterday we had what they call the Cyclone Bomb 2, uh, which is a fancy way of in today's lingo of saying we had a heavy blowing snow for a day and it's melted. So, one day we go from literally 69 degrees. Down to below freezing, and now we're back up to the uh, low sixties again mm. so but but, you, but it's great it's always great in Colorado, yeah, you have lots of sunshine out there at three hundred and
0: fifty five days a year, <laughs> more than Florida, believe uh, it or not, all right, so uh, as we record this it's uh April twelfth uh, twenty nineteen uh, the weather here in uh, southern New England is uh winter is still holding on uh, gray. <laughs> Gray, damp and, uh, cold. Uh, my, uh, my daffodils and my, and my, uh, crocuses are just saying, Oh no. And, uh, they just need some more warmth and sunshine as I do. But, uh, anyhow, so enough of the weather. I always say, I always talk weather with investigators because, well, let's face it. We're out in it all the time, you know? Yep. And, uh, absolutely. So that much. Uh, but at this point, I like to ask my guests, what do what do you tell people when they ask you what do you do? Well, so we're, we're licensed legal investigators. And
1: we're also expert consultants. So what what we don't do is we don't do CSI that you might see on TV and things like that. But what we do do is we help uh, families, uh, defendants, uh, people that have been involved in traumatic events such as motor vehicle collisions. Uh, yeah, so what we do is we provide uh, support. A uh, legal investigative like you, I'm a CLI like you, uh, in expert consultations and uh, personal injury, negligence, and death cases for civil and criminal, and we also do some probate, which is also what you do, but we don't do it the same way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the same degree. But So our, our passion is really uh, in helping people out. So that could be in the civil arena or the, or the criminal defense arena. Uh, but we're real passionate about that. Uh, so we tell people that what we do is we we're, we're fact finders and we report that to our client. And uh, we just simply do the best we can to make sure that the story of the person uh, that's represented by our client is being told, um, you know, accurately and as fully as you know can be. Which by that I just mean like you know that uh, you know the courts have the discretion under evidentiary rules what can be heard and stuff, but. Mm. Uh, but we help people that's that's what we tell people we do we help other people
0: and it's a straightforward answer that's similar mm-hmm. as what i do i work with personal injury attorneys that help the severely injured or i mm-hmm. help uh, criminal defense attorneys with their actually innocent clients so it's uh, in my case i'm i'm working for uh, people too not necessarily yeah. working for major corporations or insurance companies or governments it's helping other other people and that's uh, i think that's my explanation when i have to tell people that too as well so, Dean, just uh, how did you get started with all this way back in the day?
1: Yeah, well, I, I started October 1st,
0: 1987.
1: Okay. And so, there's two parts to actually what I started and how I started. So, the first part is when I began investigations and process serving, um, I was uh, had was out of high school and was working on at a family-owned grocery store, a small chain of a few stores, and I was on the fast track for management. But some things were changing, not just within the family-owned store, but within the economy. And I realized that that wasn't the career that I thought it would be. Um, so uh, there were attorneys that always came in the store, and I I uh, was thinking about them. And then I went through the Yellow Pages. And, and yes, we did have Yellow Pages in 1987 for those <laughs> that are too young to wonder what I'm talking about. We didn't have Google. Uh, we had card catalogs, encyclopedias, and Yellow Pages. But mm-hmm. um I went through the Yellow Pages, and I came across detectives, and I thought, well, you know, my dad was in the Navy, and I spent a lot of time when we moved around finding my old friends to keep in touch with them, and I had frequently helped people with things like that through junior high and high school, so it seemed obvious to me that I should look into that. Colorado did not have licensing at the time. Um I was interviewed with places that I contact, but never hired, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm wasting my time trying to get hired, so I'll start my business. And that's what I did. And I went to every law office in town and a few out of town in the same county and just left information and, and personally met with people until I was finally getting phone calls. Um, and then I carried that on for uh, many years. And then in 2000, uh, my dad and I were involved in a pretty bad motor vehicle collision, which um left him, uh, he functions fine and everything, but it did leave him disabled, and he uh, had to retire from his job that he had, his only other job he had besides the Navy, and I had to find something to do because I could not multitask, I couldn't conduct business, and I couldn't uh, administer it, and I had not shown my wife all the ins and outs of that, which was a lesson learned. Mm -hmm. So I basically opted to go get vocational training and do something different. And what I found was that I'm deeply an investigator. It's rooted in me deep. And through some vocational testing and brain therapy things I went through. And I went to the medical examiner's officer, contacted them because of some other things I had done with them in the past and asked about investigators. That's when I learned that they actually have death investigators. Okay. Yeah. And it was actually the only county in the state that had a program as well as training which to jump way ahead when the state law became that our coroners had to have training, we actually helped write that law and write that training program as a coroner's office staff. So I went through their training program. best $75 I ever spent. And then I was accepted as a volunteer intern. And then later I was uh, hired part-time by a neighboring county where we had joint pathologists. And then I was hired part-time by the county I trained at. And then later, I went to the law enforcement academy because it was required to gain full time employment, and I did that for a while and in that time, also, my wife did the same thing except for she didn't work full time so we both went through all that uh, we were uh, we for the for the death cases that we were called on, we had to uh, complete those from the moment we were paged uh, went to the scene to the moment we signed off on the death certificate, so we did all the Scene response, scene investigation, next of kin notifications, interviews, medical record reviews. We uh, uh, hands on participated in the autopsies uh, and assisted with those with the doctor. So, w- and we were a 24 hour business. Uh, the coroner's offices are throughout the country because people do pass away at all times of the days and nights, mm-hmm. uh, holidays or not. And then in uh, that was all started taking place from about 2002 and then in um, 2008, I decided that I had missed this private sector a great deal. And uh, I wanted to return to it, but I wanted to focus more on, on death and serious bodily injury instead of general investigations, which by general, I mean, I was doing a lot of criminal and civil cases, but I wasn't really focusing on specific types. And I really wanted to focus on death and serious bodily injury traumatic events because my own motor vehicle collision taught me a lot about what people can go through. And um, working at the coroner's medical examiner's office also taught us a lot of what people can go through. So, again, that uh, just contributed to our passion. And that's what my wife Karen and I did. And we've been doing that um over a decade now specifically. And uh we provide expert consultations for families and equivocal deaths where they often question if a family member lost level and committed suicide or if they might have been victim to a homicide or, or an accident or something like that. We do that for attorneys because questions can be asked about insurance benefits, which you're well aware of, as well as uh, standing in civil litigation and things like that. And, of course, we do criminal defense still, and I provide expert consultations. at. So I had a two-stage time in this field, mm-hmm. um, and that second time is when I joined NALI. That's when you and I met, and I uh, tested for and, and attained uh, my certified legal Investigator designation, which I'm very proud of. And as you know, it's quite an accomplishment. Sure. Uh, and then we've just continued on to um, a passion for our profession by trying to network with other people. We uh, have written books, articles, developed courses. I do a lot of speaking engagements. So whatever we can do to help other people feel that same passion that we do
0: is what we do. All right. Well, I just wanted to go over an acronym that we're both familiar with, uh, NALI, National Association of Legal Investigators, and then CLI is the designation uh, through some very rigorous testing certified legal investigator of which you and I are only uh, a few of, what, uh, 70, 75 yeah, people? 75, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, for, uh, for for real, that's a, that's a serious uh, designation. It's uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, two uh, two uh, box tops and 25 cents and, <laughs> you know and you get it so uh but But going back uh, a little bit earlier, you talked about uh, after your accident with your pop that uh, it changed your uh, thinking about what you wanted to do and how you wanted to go about it. And uh, you started a a course of study that uh, in your county and and was able to work in that or in the neighboring county and uh, in your county that led to work, uh, which then you then were able to bring back into the private uh, sector again. Do I understand that all right? Yep, that's that's the chain of events. Yes yeah so uh death investigations uh you you mentioned just briefly about uh family wanting closure. What would be some examples where a family would contact you uh versus accepting uh whatever uh, information had already been provided to them
1: well the the most common examples are the various suicides and most are uh, uh, and and they're very tragic uh at most are gunshot wound, uh, but there can be other forms, hangings and things like that. So there's different evidence and things we look at, but families often come because they have two things happen. They Well, there's three things that happen. First, they have a deep loss uh, and a big void for what happened. And that's, of course, certainly something we can understand has happened, but we can't say that we understand how they feel. But we understand that's happened. And the second is uh they have... A misunderstanding of the way the investigative process works, and then the second is they have a lot of myth information so and that's not negative on the families. it's because we're bombarded with all this information, and we are basically believing what's put in front of us. So they come to us with genuine concerns and genuine questions, and we can fully understand why they feel that way and and of course the the you know that tragic void. And they may have the most legitimate questions in the world that need to be looked into, but they can also at the same time have a big misunderstanding of how the investigative process works. And so somehow that's the most common thing. And we we have to bring those together and see if we can find out, you know, is the family on the right path? Is there really something to be concerned about? Or are they just needing better communication that they're not getting from the official investigating agencies, which – does happen okay. and we find that sometimes there's about a 50 50 problem there so sometimes we look at it and we find out you know that once we get with the family and explain to them in a better way um and that's you know because we try to just really reach down and and where we trained at at the county corners office that was one of the things we were taught to understand is is that sometimes you just really got to sit down with them and uh you know share with them how things work and 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 really just bring it down to a a non-technical aspect and sometimes that's what it takes and other times you know they're they have really legitimate concerns and maybe the investigation was uh deficient in a way or maybe totally deficient Mm -hmm. but yet the outcome is no different um you know Mm -hmm. it it and then sometimes we just got to put all that together and and Uh, So they can understand, you know, you have really strong legitimate concerns, but the evidence isn't there. Mm -hmm. And other times, which I'll tell you a little bit later when we ask about some of the some some things we've worked with, they really have a strong legitimate concern. They're strong, legitimate evidence, but they're not being listened to. And they need somebody like us to go in and say, you know, this family's right. Their evidence is right. In fact, here's even more evidence that they're right. And we need—we're trying to help them get that fixed, and that's not as often, um, but but it does happen, and that's the role that we we play. We 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 speak for the dead. Um, we owe them the truth. Sure. Um, and sometimes it, the family is just really struggling. They're on the right track, and and maybe they're hundred—they're right all the way down the road, or maybe they just don't understand it. We got to figure out where that's at and bring them together on it. And if they're—even if they're not on the right path, but they have the right. They're really their concern is founded. We need to, you know, help help them bring that together in a way that they'll be listened to. Okay, uh, you know, so kind of like a uh, presenting it to a jury. We're trying to help the family present it to a jury, but the jury is, you know, the official investigators need to listen to them. Sure. I have a good, I have a good example of that. Oh, please. We'll talk about.
0: Yeah. Well, no, not now, but so no, a little later. I, well. And, uh, so I have a very, um, basic understanding of death, and I understand death can be caused by natural, accidental, or, uh, homicide. I mean, that, and homicide doesn't, I, I don't mean in the sense of murder. I just means, uh, death at the hands of another person or death by, uh, at their own hands. Do I, did I get that right? Accidental, uh, Uh, natural and homicide. Sure, yeah. yeah, you got those right the the manners of death mm-hmm. okay, so in those situations is it that sometimes uh, something could be called accidental but maybe it's uh not or something could be called um, natural but it's not something could be called homicide and it's not and 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 that's why you know the manners of death are so important and uh, the questions arising are uh, such that uh, maybe a, a second look or uh, and maybe Maybe the first real look at it needs to be done in order to determine what the true manner of death was do i do i get that right yes
1: and it can have not only can have significant impact on emotionally with a family uh, so for example if if something was ruled uh, a suicide but they you know know this was an accident um you know or a homicide but I'm going to focus on accident for the purpose of this, it can have a financial impact on them because there may be an insurance clause that says we don't pay out on suicides, which is usually for a number of years after the policy is executed. Right. Um, or there's a double indemnity for with an accident and right. insurance companies send out their investigators to verify these things and families have a right to or attorneys usually representing the family so those come into play too and sometimes it's it's really just a matter of uh they just they just need to know if the answers that they're given are correct or if their feelings, you know, how they're seeing it, you know, what the legitimate questions they have uh, you know, would be the correct. So it could be any of those number of things.
0: Okay. And that's what I need to clarify that for me. And I think you helped sure. me a lot. And the other thing, too, is back in those uh, early days when you made the transition from a uh, general investigative to uh, in your local area after your accident to getting more involved in death investigations, uh, it seemed like you really I uh, got a passion for it and really uh, decided that this was going to be your uh, uh, avocation within your uh, profession, that you were going to specialize in death investigation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. Uh, we still do provide, you know,
1: locates. I mean, that's what I started out at was doing a lot of locates and assets. And I wrote the books and stuff on it and my first speaking. But we still do those. We have clients that need those. Uh, we do, you know, usually involved in our personal injury and death investigations. But overall, uh, the, the overall majority, better than 70 percent of what we do is uh, death investigation or, or uh Uh, serious bottle injury, which really for us, the the only difference is between the two is Uh, maybe the person did not die. Maybe it was a non-fatal event, but everything else is up the same. I mean, a a quarter of an inch can make a determination if a person, uh, you know, a stab wound dies or not. Right. And for us investigating it, it's essentially the same right up until it, it differs at that fork in the road of they died or they didn't die. Mm -hmm. So that's a very big benefit to, uh, particularly our clients, because when we can understand, uh, those things, it gives them a, a, a big leg up on, on their own uh, advocacy for their client.
0: Okay. So, uh, and to your point, or not to your point, but back to the, the, the fact that this became very, very uh, passionate for you to make sure that this was part of your business mix. Were there any uh, mentors or persons in the earliest days of your training that really gave you a lot of uh, encouragement to go down this path? And what was it that made you realize that uh, they were good mentors and, and that they could uh, give you uh, advice and training that would stick sure so probably you know we all have our our family
1: uh, you know our spouses my wife she you know and uh, parents you know things like that that have always been strong and supportive uh, but as far as people that really become mentors specifically in the field uh focusing on our death investigation and bodily injury uh While we were at the coroner's office, uh, one of my best friends today from that time and personally, uh, he, he was the way he taught us both in the classrooms and out in the field and in the autopsy suite, uh, really has always stuck with me as passion for families. We were just so much alike in so many ways that way. Uh, him, another investigator that was behind me in learning as well as my wife and we just all had that same passion and the the uh, corner, the electric corner at the time was also, he's passed on, unfortunately, but he was also uh, very helpful. Uh, he was very strict in things. He expected things a certain way, which was, you know, frankly, the way we'd like to do things. But one of our other uh, training forensic pathologists, uh, and we still work with them today as one of our consultants, just really had a way of making sure that you know, everybody had a, had a reason to learn something. And so we learned everything from every interaction we had with people. Uh, so those people were important. But then on, on on the outside of that, probably the strongest uh, mentorship uh, honestly was uh, NALI, the National Association of Legal Investigators, because of the, the tight network of people that are involved in that. Uh, and then our state association. I mean, really, those those people. I'm involved in other associations uh, for different reasons, but specifically for training component uh, and learning and with each other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, learning and and giving back and stuff like that. That was all very important to me. So we had a, a, a strong list of mentors, and and frankly, I learned from that that I that I like being a mentor to other people. As well.
0: Well, and and to that point, I wanted to say you you mentioned earlier about writing books and uh, uh, creating uh, uh, presentations and doing white papers and whatnot. Just tell me about some of these things because I'd like to hear a lot about that.
1: Well, uh, my white paper for my CLI was uh, reviewing and comprehending autopsy reports. it was about 21 pages, which was a lot longer than the CLI committee, which I serve on now. But the CLI committee at the time anticipated having from an applicant, um, and that turned in. That was actually became one of the ideas for uh, a book I wanted, and that 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 particular white paper came with the help of of my wife, Karen. Uh, Maury Miller is the investigator that I was talking about. Uh, Steve Cena is a forensic pathologist that we work with. So I had to go to all these different people to make sure that that report was written in a way that that I intended. So it wasn't written for any of us within the field, but written for those of us, for, for, for anybody outside of it that would benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from that, um, Rory McMahon, who's a fellow CLI and friend of ours and NALI member, he was my proctor for my CLI. And when he when all was said and done, he suggested that I write a book. And so that white paper became a chapter in itself. And he he helped me find CRC Publishing, who he wrote for. And I had to go through all the hard work to get accepted for the book, but he did give me the door. Uh, so Rory uh, was another mentor for that. Mm-hmm. And that's where the book came from. And from there, in that oh, book, the, I mentioned –
0: the name of the book,
1: title. Yeah, uh, um, it's practical methods for legal investigations. Okay. And, uh, that was finalized in 2010. And I still, I still use it. It's used, uh, in some Florida classrooms and some others around, around here and there. <laughs> um, and there were several people that were involved in that, that, including, uh, what we called at the time the Nashville Five, which was, uh, Sue Carlson, who has passed on, mm. uh, Mark Mernan, uh, Bill Elliott, and, um, Rod Baker and myself. Um, so they helped me uh, with ideas of the book, plus some local people. I relied on a lot of CLIs for that book, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Johnson was my other proctor, and he was uh, very helpful. Uh, he also does a lot of wordsmithing, so he had some guidance there as well. So, you know, these people that helped with that book were also my mentors. They're still all my good friends today. And they've, you know, the leadership qualities that go with it and the uh, how we work together and just encourage each other's, you know, welcoming, just like doing this today with you. I know it's, you know, I haven't been able to attend an alley conference, but I'll be at this one. um Philadelphia, and, and Philadelphia. You're almost your back door. Yeah. Almost your back door. Yep. And looking forward to that. Um, but when we get together like this, whether it's, you know, infrequently, uh, time passes, Maybe doing this podcast, this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really reminds us all how important all those are. And, you know, that's when you and I met was there in Nashville. And um, yes, no, actually, no, I take that back. We met right before that at the winter conference um, when I met your son, John, yeah, and then you and we were in Scottsdale, Arizona, and then we and then the CLI happened after that. So, mm-hmm. you know, just, these things are important to people. And I think when you ask about who your mentors are and things like that, mm-hmm. I think we really have to reflect back on this group of people that we're often still in touch with, that we all continue to help each other and grow with each other, uh, even though we may not be close. Uh, but we know that we can reach out and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and that's important for private investigators that are uh, many times, uh, well, lonely people because they're running a business in an area uh, in a, with a unique niche that is not uh, something that uh, other people are capable of doing or are doing at all. And the only way you're going to get any kind of uh, growth is by uh, talking with your fellow investigators n- nationally who are are also trying to uh, grow their skill sets, uh, get better at what they do, bounce ideas off each other, and uh, try to make uh, every step that they make a little bit better. And by doing so, each investigator gets uh, stronger in their craft. Is this a good way of explaining it uh, in answer to what you were saying? That's exactly the way I see it. It it really,
1: it is a craft, very much so. And we're always learning and evolving and we all um, you know, help each other. I mean, that and yeah. learn from each other, and that's that's really important.
0: No, and to your point, uh, I saw Don Johnson uh, last week at the IntelNet conference down in uh, Charlotte, and um, right. and Rory McMahon was a podcast guest uh, four podcasts ago. That's right, he was. Yes. <laughs> uh, he was absolutely, so, yeah. So it's not that we're in a uh, uh, a small band of brothers, but I think that uh, organizations that uh, are selective in their Membership requirements, as, as opposed to maybe a, a state organization, tends to bring together people that are interested in in growing their skill sets and networking, and being and and being of service to other investigators as well. And it's in those areas that uh, we become uh, we become uh, mentors as well as being the apprentice simultaneously. You know, yep. and that's that's a great way to do it. I know one day when we were down in uh, Florida, I ran a business idea by you. We had, we Walk like 10 city blocks. I remember that day <laughs> when we were talking and it was a hot day down there in uh, Miami. But, you know, I just want, I want to ask you what you thought about something and you were a good listener and we talked about it and uh, I, I got your opinion on it and I went ahead and did it. Uh, but right. yeah, but uh, so I, you know, I think it's crucial uh, for our listeners to understand that uh, relying on classroom instruction and then on the job training many times is not enough that you have to actually... Uh, go out and seek other people uh, and other um, sources to augment your, 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 your own investigative skills and so that you can grow them. If you're going to rely on your, your business or your company or your um, uh, organization to, to supply you with that, if you're going to be passive and accept the classes that are given to you, you're not really striving, striving to uh, get better at what you do and to learn other skill sets as well. I mean, that, I think that's a good way of saying it, don't you?
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's important for us to, to realize that we can reach out. Like there's a lot, any new investigators sometimes are very cautious about reaching out. Um, you know, we need to encourage that. And it really is true when you have, an association like Nally, for example, mm-hmm. that is very, uh you know, vetted on, on, on acceptance for membership. It's not exclusive like, you know, that people might get the impression of, but you know, they, they do check your background and stuff like right. that and, and your experience and they do have a minimum experience requirement. And that's, uh, so that we can all continue to grow together, mm-hmm. uh, and I I think those things really help us develop some good camaraderie. Uh, you know that walking experience you mentioned is always something we we remember, and and we learn that we can do that with with people. We can just throw ideas out of people. Somebody yep. says, well, "Why would you do that?" They're going to steal your idea. No, we're going to, uh, you know, th- this person trusts me enough to ask me what I think of it, and right. and you know I I mean you know I'm I'm glad. You know lad David, for example, you felt great to talk to me. I talk to people all the time. people come to me uh that's how we that's how we grow this profession into being the respectful
0: uh advocacy that it is yeah, absolutely now um Another thing too is that you mentioned earlier that at the time Colorado or Colorado was not, uh, uh, li- uh state did not require licensing. Weren't you and a right. group of other people instrumental in getting a professional licensing requirement in the state? Yeah. Um, I, I was the board chairman at the time. Uh, and
1: that, so it, licensing was one of the first laws passed when Colorado became a state with the legislature in 1877 when they started passing laws. Uh, you know not just state formation laws but but consumer laws, and it was actually the first p i license law in the country and <clears> then it was modeled in New York, so a lot of people don 't realize that a hundred years later in nineteen seventy seven that law was repealed as unconstitutional uh, there 's different stories of why that happened, including personal agendas and politics and things like that so frankly, at this point i don 't know what story's true other than you know what's printed and, and and is supposed to be the basis. But PPIC was formed in nineteen seventy eight, the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, uh, which heavily vets membership. Um there's no experience requirement, but I want to comment on that that you you just don't walk in and be a member. You go it's a background that's more uh entailed than the state licensing background. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so we look for that for character. And that's important because when there wasn't licensing and people were PPIC members. There wasn't a way to vet who they were. So it became the association that would vet its members. Uh, mm-hmm. So that became one of the bedrocks. But uh, in 2012, a voluntary license was passed uh, when I was board chairman. That was very controversial as the first in the country. Uh, because some things were not implemented in the way that they should have been, uh, the program uh, became expensive and it failed. Okay. And we knew that would happen, you know, about the third, second year into it. When it was on its third renewal, we knew that was going to happen. And we were – mandatory failed so many times. I can't count the times it failed because of the legislature and the regulatory, regulatory agency just did not support it, the idea of any licensing, let alone mandatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we finally reached a point um, at, at, because of that failure where we were able to demonstrate – during that voluntary, that there is an important reason to have consumer protection, uh, and also title protection so that private investigators can, can do things that our attorneys hire us to do legally and ethically. Um, and that the public, you know, for some investigators, we, we, we're, we we do not really have public, um, General public clients, except for families and death cases, but so we needed we needed those types of protections, and those are the two of the three things that happened on our mandatory licensing that we got passed in effective 2015. Um, there's a, a clear background check, criminal background check done, fingerprint, and then we have to pass a prudent exam. We don't have an experience requirement. We have an upper level of licensure that that reflects your experience. And people ask, well, why is that? Shouldn't you be experienced to be a PI? Well, the regulatory agency and the legislature have long felt that there should not be barriers to entering a trade, generally speaking. So whether or not that would continue is is unknown, but that's that's the reason why it's that way there. But the criminal background history is important, especially with the access to information that we do get and do ask for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that and now you know we have over 900 licensed private investigators uh, in Colorado and uh, licensed within Colorado, but the, but about 100 to 150 of those are from out of state.
0: Okay. But still, I mean, that's that's kind of a normal type mm-hmm. of thing. You have, you know, you know, people from uh, internet or not international, national uh, PI firms that will take a license in, indiv- in each individual state in order to be licensed there and to say that they're right. licensed there and to be able to conduct business there. Uh, and then you have other people that in adjoining states, uh, it makes sense for them to do so. And that's not uncommon. I mean, in Connecticut, right. you know, we have a, a bleed over from New York and Massachusetts as well. So, not a, not unheard of so i i just wanted to mention that because you mentioned it earlier that uh you know, about them uh, being unlicensed but then i know that you were instrumental in getting that done now you also do advocacy on a national level too with the the national um uh, nciss i, I forget yeah. the, i so give yeah, the abbreviation all these acronyms the national yeah.
1: the national council of investigation and security services yes sir um i've been on the board since uh 2010 Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is the current executive director, Karen, uh, okay. since Sits past director of many, many years, uh, retired. And um, I'm a past president, past board chairman. I sit on several committees like I do at NALI. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of NCISS is legislative advocacy, particularly at the federal level with Congress and regulators. Uh, we help state associations uh, as, as they might need it. Uh, They do all the legwork, you know, really, because it's a state thing, but we're there to help them and support them and back them, uh, with things, GPS laws, drone laws, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that, uh, licensing laws, for example. So with NCISS, we watch regulators and we watch Congress for particularly things that might, uh, come from privacy bills. So uh, consumer privacy, we have to watch those because it inevitably, when there's something about consumer privacy, that means there might be a restriction to records. Right. The Rebecca Schaefer uh case uh she was a an actress that was killed after a person in California, a stalker, obtained her driving record and her address and was able to go to where she lived and then killed her. And that became uh where literally every state uh started banning access to driving records and the federal government developed uh, that the Congress started looking into that. And NCISS had board members at the time, before my time, testify before committees uh, the importance of the information for civil litigation, criminal litigation, even probate, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. So s- federal government developed the Drivers Protection Privacy Act uh, states developed their own uh, acts. So those have very specific permissible purposes mm-hmm. for licensed private investigators, which was another reason why we wanted to have licensing in Colorado Right. S- title protection uh, so that we could have these accesses that would be granted to licensed PIs. We didn't want to be left out in the cold on those. Uh, NCIS was very fundamental in, in uh, basically every record that a PI gets uh, we've been involved in. Uh, personal identifiers. We've been able to get um, permissible purposes, so we can't just go out and do it because we want to. Mm-hmm. We have to have reasons to be able to do that, as you know. But for our listeners, we have to check off different reasons, either on a form or online or whatever, and we have to be vetted by those providers. Right. Uh, so NCIS have been heavily, heavily involved uh, in in over forty years of of all that. Le- if you've seen that legislation. Trust me when I tell you, there was a direct impact on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do have the ears of several key members of Congress, uh, the House and the Senate both. Um, and uh, we're having our hit the hill coming up in a couple of weeks. In fact, uh, the president of the Connecticut Association, uh, Paul Ciccarella, is on our board now, and he's going to be joining us at the Hitdale event and meet some mm-hmm. of your Connecticut people. Right. So we're looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, and and to that point, uh, I as I, ra- I raised it because you uh, have not only a local uh, footprint with uh, your turning, uh, having Colorado uh, create a professional licensing in, uh, for their investigators, but also you had a national impact as well, and I wanted to bring that to the table. I appreciate Other- Yeah, you mentioned also, too, that you've been working in this business with your wife wife. And uh, uh, months ago, I, I interviewed uh, Wendy and Mark Mernon. And oh, yes. And, yes. Uh, and that was a, my first husband and wife team. I had them both on at the time. I'm sorry, I don't have uh, Karen on today. But uh, how's it been working with your spouse in, in your business? Well, she joined part-time in 96. Uh, and then
1: uh, she was full time for quite a while, but fr- right now she deals mostly with NCISS as the executive director. Sure. And she's the administrative manager of, of WAD, the World Association of Detectives. So that's almost full time between the two of them, but we still work together mostly on the family cases. Okay. Uh, that we get. Um, but all the years that we've worked together, I mean, our desks are almost side by side. Uh, it's, you know, it's, um, we have, we have a great relationship, a great friendship, and a great marriage to begin with. And oftentimes it can be, and Mark and Wendy are wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be very hard to work together as well. Yes. Um, okay. And when she worked at the corners office, they questioned, "Would that would that work out?" And I, I, frankly, I kind of looked at the chief and said, "But you, your husband works here full time with you, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled at that question." But I understood her point was, you know. Is there, you know, are, you know, is this going to work out well for you guys? And, you know, frankly, John, we work so well together. Uh, it really, um, I couldn't picture it a different way. And and honestly, that was some of what I missed uh, when I came back in 2008. I just uh, want, wanted to, to go back to the idea. And we had to have long conversations, you know, if it would work. Uh, changes again uh you know was sure. she willing to to take on you know doing that with me again and stuff like that we're both very passionate but here's here's what i really truly appreciate more than a lot of other things that she does for us and that's simply that she works with me on these cases we work at them independently and then we come together and talk about them and she brings such a different perspective to the way uh, things are presented she really can deep down understand uh some of the families, because she talks to them uh, just like I do, but she hears things Um and mm-hmm. she has a female intuition, to be honest with you. It's a real thing. It's like our gut feeling. Um, but she sees things. I can count time and time again. She's seen a detail in something that, that I completely overlooked. And it's, I don't, I, it, I know some of it is her intuition. Some of it's her training and experience and others is just having a second set of eyes. But if I'm going to have a second set of eyes, I want hers to be the first,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, on that. But as far as uh, working with her, you know, there's just so much wonderful things we do together. I really would not have it another way. Okay. And I'm so grateful for it. It's wonderful.
0: Well, thank you. And now we're at that stage of the podcast uh, when my guests usually tell me their favorite stories. So uh, you have a few for (laughs) me, Dean? So. Let's, earlier I referenced one
1: that would be really good to understand the equivocal death and helping families. Okay. And, uh, John Colvin, uh, these are names that we all, you know, know. And if our listeners don't know, just trust me, John and I know all these names. John Colvin's a a early CLI. He's been an alley member for over 30 years now. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I actually met him at the same Scottsdale, uh, that I was at attending with you and and your son, John. But Mm -hmm. he, he contacted me one day. And want to know if I take a look at this case that he had. He said, I'm, I, I'm positive what it is, but I really need somebody like you to take a look at it. I said, okay. So he sends it to me and I'm looking at photographs. My wife walks in the office and says, looks at my computer monitor and says, so who killed him? <laughs> I said, well, uh, you know, it's supposed to be a suicide. What makes you think it's a homicide? And it, it for us, it was actually really obvious. Um, but. The family needed more than obvious to work with. Uh, they needed, they needed really solid facts. So we had to, sp- we worked with John's. And we spent a lot of time on this case, but it's the Sean, it's Sean Drenth, S E A N D R E N T H, um, Sergeant Sean Drenth. It's very, um, well known in the Phoenix area. It's been written on a lot. Rich Robertson. Oh, sure. Who's the editor of TI Magazine, the, the legal investigator for Nally, also a CLI. I think our listeners are getting a point here, right? But there are 75 CLIs in in the country, in the world, and I've probably mentioned uh, uh, 15 to 20 of them already. So I just think that's important to note. Um, But Rich hired a a former reporter that had written on this extensively uh, after the fact. Paul Rubin? Uh, So, yeah, Rubin, yep, and Paul Rubin. And so we've talked about it after, and he read my report. Um medical examiners have read the report I wrote for that. But what happened was he was found outside of his patrol car um, near the near the, the state capitol. And he was laid out in a way um, on his back uh, supine and his shotgun was on his chest. And um, he had a gunshot wound um, under the chin and, and out the top of his head. And uh, it was ruled a, a suicide. Uh, now, John knew things about this case that he didn't tell me. Uh, that were strictly involved in the investigative, and and that that's fine. You that's know, there's right. things that that don't that we don't need that influence of, um, and that case was was just so there was just so much information to look at, and I don't re- recall how long the report was, but John had to really narrow it down to a twenty point or twenty minute PowerPoint video to go with the attorney for the family and uh, try to get the widow and her son some benefits. So this was a number of years ago. And this year, right now, um, actually last week or the week before, uh, John was given the last presentation so that she could get federal benefits um, for uh, the workplace death uh, for law enforcement officers. Through the attorneys and through John's work and through our work, and my wife worked extensively on that with us, um, we were able to get uh, her survivor benefits, her, the workers' compensation benefits. The Civil Commission in Phoenix uh, determined it was a homicide or maybe accurately it was not a suicide um, and granted those benefits, full benefits, survivor benefits to the widow. And then uh, there's something to do with the Fallen Officer Memorial. Because suicides aren't sometimes, but I'm not sure exactly what happened with that or how that was worded, but, but that was taken care of. Uh, two or three life insurance policies have been taken care of since. So these, this goes extensively into some of the problem that families can have, but to this day, they won't change the death certificate. Um,
0: and reopen, and reopen, and,
1: and reopen the investigation. Right, right. Um, there were some flaws in the investigation that were procedural, factual, evidentiary. Um, so for those that are interested, John, if I could pitch something here for you, sure. I would like for people to think about going to the Nally conference, uh, coming up in Philadelphia. First of all, I've been to Philadelphia once and I'm looking forward to going back, mm-hmm. but, um, Kitty Haley, another CLI and, um, uh, Diane. There we go. I'm sorry, Diane. Diane Cowan. Uh, Diane Cowan, uh, yep. another CLI and our committee chair, are uh, helping John LaJoy, who was a former committee chair and was my committee chair w- when I was taking the CLI, right. are all working together on this conference. It's going to be a great conference. But I was asked to come present something along these lines, and I chose this case to talk about. And I've invited John to come talk about it with me. So we're going to give a lot of information at this Conference about this okay. case. I invite people to come look at it, but it was really one. It tells a great story about, uh, about fighting for the rights of, of survivors. Right. And that's, that's what we're really interested in. Uh, so that's one story. And then another story I had is from the t- my time as a medical examiner, uh, death investigator. Uh, and I carry it over and I t- talk about it a lot and it's, 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 it's really tragic. Uh, it's a wood chipper fatality because so few of them happen worldwide. And at the time, it was the first one that had happened in about six years. And unfortunately, an arborist had found himself caught as he was feeding a large limb through a wood chipper, and he ended up uh, being part of that process and, and uh, being killed. And the reason I that case is important to me is because peop- it gets people's attention uh, when I mention it because it's so rare and but there are so many investigative lessons from that that I teach other investigators: evidence collection, evidence interpretation, talking to families, dealing with really truly unthinkable tragedy. I oh mean, uh, yeah, people can think of all kind, you know, car accident stuff. Uh, we we can. But when you talk about this, I mean, we had to deal with. We knew that we had a wife driving home, listening to the radio, and we were trying to intercept her before she would by chance hear something on the media because this was such a it it would not take a relative long to realize that the news was talking about her husband. Mm. Uh, So there were so many components that we had to work on with that. And I talk about this case uh, and I've written a paper on it so that investigators can learn not only what, what the official investigation can do in a very fast pace environment, but then once it slows down and you start working on the cause and manner of death and what all we have to deal with, um, Dealing with the family and the next of kin and then their post trauma. So on this, on this same event, you know, this was a big commercial wood chipper. And one day I get called by the son and he wants to know why I can't remember exactly how he put it, but basically I authorized for the wood chipper to be, uh, sold and on eBay. And I said, no, no, I got to take that back. Somebody else called me that said the son had heard this wood chipper is for sale on eBay. I talked to the son after I found out more information. My apologies for confusing that. It's been so long. But somebody called me and wanted to know about this. I said, there's there's no way this would be on eBay. The family has it. And the guy said, yeah, the family has it. But your name's been popping up as somebody that's been doing this. And I found out that somebody on what we call our western slope, which is the other side of the mountains, had a wood chipper for sale on eBay. It was actually claiming that it was this tragic event. And they were – they were riding on the family's grief, and it was so offensive that uh, I contacted the family's attorney who who had been a prior client of mine, and I knew well, and uh, told him what I'd found out. And then I got a hold of the son and told him what I'd found out. But here people were using a tragedy, which we see all the time, but they were using this tragedy to try to make profit off of a completely, you know, wood chipper that uh, wasn't related to anything, but they thought they would get some extra money from writing this tragedy. Oh, geez. So, so I, I bring this up because we, we can deal with things. So our listeners understand we can deal with things in such a wide scope that becomes totally unpredictable. Um, and we have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the private sector, that happens too. I mean, time and time again, we, we see and hear cases where, um, they're resolved or whatever. And then boom, next thing you know, something has come up with them or they're in the media again or something like that. And we got to be able to, uh, help our clients through that trauma again, maybe. Um, or maybe there's something positive as well, like a Sean Drenth. I mean, that, you know, now that's become a very positive, uh, in the media there, you know, because there's so everybody's rooting for the family because they see that it was a homicide. Um, right. So when they see that the family you know, that the family's, uh, you know it's still very tragic, but they're but they're finally glad to see that the family's getting what they um you know what they're seeking and and that's the truth, sure. Uh, you know, so yeah.
0: Now, uh, I know that you were the death investigator for the county at the time, but was there any discussion uh, with you about the, the mechanical working of the wood chipper? Was it functioning properly? Or was there any ne- uh, negligence in the design or manufacture that caused the unfortunate death of this arborist? Sure. So that
1: type, and that's one reason I like to give the presentation is is that's part of the presentation actually. Okay. Uh, what what did happen? We have a we have a very strong theory of what happened. And uh, because of circumstance, evidence that we have, uh, we feel that his hand, his left hand specifically was caught on part of the, a tree knot and it pulled him through. Right. And, and, and that's because of ev- evidence we have of what did survive intact during this, wood chip during this event, but immediately we look and those of us that deal with, uh, and I did not at the time. Uh, so this was new to me, but mm-hmm. those nowadays that we deal with these, uh, corporate-related uh, tragedies, you know, what could be at fault and stuff. So uh, the family attorney who I knew, he's a personal injury attorney, and uh, they they did uh, look into that. But during our official investigation, we were contacted – by we, I mean the office, uh, so actually me – but we were contacted right away by the manufacturer. I mean, they were right on it. They they have a a group of people. Every corporation, every manufacturer has attorneys and groups of people that literally watch these events, sees them, are notified of them, and they act on it. And they want to get out there right away. Of course, OSHA was there, which frankly, OSHA just takes my report and and rewrote it for their report. That's (laughs) you know, sorry guys, but that is what happened. Yeah. Um. But the the manufacturer, they anything we asked for, they provided. Um. in some ways, because they had to, in other ways. But frankly, before we were asking for it, they were providing it, and it was very helpful to us in, in determining some things. Uh, we had to look into the person's background and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There was a divorce filing, but they had reconciled recently. Uh, all these different considerations. But was there a fault with the equipment? We didn't find any. Uh, it was independently examined. Uh, it was examined by the by the city where the death took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was examined by the manufacturer, and it was examined by attorneys, engineers. So there wasn't a fault found with the function of the wood chipper. But here's what was interesting is that it was found out um, that – so if I could describe for my listeners, this is a huge wood chipper, not the kind you rent from Office Depot. It's bigger than that. Um and you stand in front of this and you throw in your limbs and your branches and whatever, and you feed them in. And then about eight feet away on the side are the controls. And the instructions specifically state that it's a two-man operation for the wood chipper.
0: Hmm. I'm and starting to hear then, this
1: already, but go ahead. Right, And so somebody is supposed to be at the controls and somebody is supposed to be – uh you know, doing the operating of, of, you know, feeding feeding the wood chipper, and then there might be a, another person, um, you know, cutting the limbs and things like that. Right. And there's some background that we did that I don't want to get into first, so I get too long, but I don't want to disparage anybody that was that was involved uh, for things that they did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. But the the the, per, the decedent was very strict about his workplace safety, uh, especially for his employees. Uh, so they had all the safety gear, and there was a, a strong evidence of that. But there wasn't somebody standing at the controls. Uh, there was two people working that day. Uh, there were other events that happened that prevented a third person from being there. Uh, uh, some very personal events to to the people involved, but a third person could not be there, but they went ahead and did this that day anyhow. And the accident happened. We found out uh, from the manufacturer that – this, this equipment was bought used. Um, it was fairly new, but it was bought used and it came, uh, since that manufacturing time, but before this event time. So in between the two, uh, the manufacturer had came out with the new, uh, new equipment and new safety features, which one of them included a bar that would go down as like a U shape. So it would go down from each side and then under. And it was a red bar and what would happen is the person would have to lean on that bar for it to work and the minute they were not leaning on it right it would cease functioning a like dead man up, switch like dead a dead man switch, switch or right yep and exactly so that wasn't there that wasn't meant to be on this device there was no retrofitting of that on this piece of equipment but so in other words the manufacturer was well aware of and probably from a prior lawsuit which i don't i'm told there was but i don't know factually but that's why, and that's, that's how these things happen is something happens and then a company is put on notice and then they come up with these safety features. Right. Um, so that's, that's the whole, that's kind of the whole story of how all that came together. Um, uh, we had measurements of the blades, the distances, the, the feeding mechanisms, all this stuff. Um, so there was a combination of factors that unfortunately led to this happening. Um, uh, You know, and there are people, unfortunately, with these, we learned from the company that disable these dead man switches. Right. Uh, And of course, you know, the company's not liable if anything happens, but they disable them because they're inconvenient. They want these things to run and run and run so they can just go back and start throwing branches in. Right. um, You know, and, um, he he just didn't have that if he if he would have had that switch on that or if he would have had a piece of equipment you know uh that way it, it would have been that outcome probably in all likelihood would not have happened sure so again john you've touched and i appreciate it on all the different reasons i give this presentation for and the attention getters it's a wood chipper but when people sit in on it they they walk away going wow i i did not expect to learn anything i just expected to you know, see this wood chipper fatality, but they actually learn a whole lot of totally different. In an hour, they learn so much investigative process, um, I, I can't even name them all from working with official agencies to working with equipment, defects, safety features, negligences. Um, uh, you
0: just, you wouldn't believe what you learn in an hour. Yeah. So that's why I like to give it. Well, and that's a, and that's a great story. And, and I, and we did not talk about this story ahead of time. It's just i I'm just a nosy oh, investigator. That's right. <laughs> Anyhow. And that's uh, just two guys uh, throwing ideas around. So, right. um, So, Dean, it's been a pleasure having you on, Uh, and and this hour has flown by, hasn't it? It has, and-
1: Uh, Hopefully, it was an hour that everybody enjoyed, and I appreciate you inviting me and everybody listening in.
0: Oh, I am very appreciative of your time. I'm glad that you took the time to talk to me. Uh, We never really got into deep detail about the stuff that you did, and I thought this would be a good time. And uh, I'm glad that you came on the podcast. Uh, How can people reach you if they want to learn more? Sure. I
1: appreciate that. Uh, They could reach us. Our website is uh, uh, deathexperts.com. Uh, pretty easy. Yep. They could reach uh reach me at uh email address is Beers D A B E E R S D A mm-hmm. at uh deathExperts dot com and our phone number is nine seven zero four eight zero seven seven nine three uh, for investigators that are listening, uh, we do have, uh, an, uh, a referral program that, that you can help families, attorneys. Sure. With, uh, give us a call. We'll, we'll help you with that and explain it because our goal is to make everybody, uh, understand what this is about and to help them help their clients. So feel free to give us a call, even if it's just to ask us a question or get some advice on something. We're always
0: available. Thank you so much, Dean. I appreciate you being on. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, everybody. Mm Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Bruce Pitt-Payne. Bruce honed his skills as a major crime investigator and interview specialist over his 26-year career with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was a full-time team leader on the E-Division interview team, as well as a part-time member of the Integrated High. Homicide Investigation Team Special Projects Unit. He's a subject matter expert on investigative technique, including interviewing adults, witnesses and suspects, and children. For several years, he was the program manager of investigative interviewing training for the RCMP in British Columbia, where he was instrumental in the creation and implementation of the RCMP, Phased Interview Model, which is the peace model after an evolutionary adaption to Canadian legal and ethical standards. He has taught witness and suspect interviewing skills on both a national and a national an international scale. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to johnhoda.com and click on the podcast page. There you will find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they're available for you free with your email subscription to the podcast as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes from my book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here is my ask. If you were informed, inspired, and entertained by the stories today. Don't be bashful. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your friends, then leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. If you like to leave a comment, you can do so on the website at www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.